Let's turn in our Bibles to hymn, uh, excuse me, to Psalm 109. Psalm 109. They were hymns for uh, the church and still are in lots of ways. We have entitled this the Judas Psalm. What a terrible name to give to a psalm. Why would we do that? This is uh, an unusual psalm, a striking psalm in some respects, because of the awful curse that you find in this psalm. David wrote this psalm, we're told, in the introductory part, and it starts off with a complaint. In verse 1, David calls for help, calls on God for help. He says, Hold not thy peace, O God of my praise. He wants God to act on his behalf. And uh, this psalm may have been written while David was being hunted like a bird by Saul prior to becoming king, or it could have been written when Absalom, his son, revolted against him uh, while he was king, or some similar period of real trial, and he calls on God for help. Notice the character assassination that he's experiencing. In verse 2, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They compassed me about also with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. For my love, they are my adversaries. Verse 5, they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Uh, here, David has been innocent. He has returned to good for evil, and yet they persist in their character assassination. And uh, he is very pained over this. Maybe you've experienced character assassination. Know something of the pain of it. I read of a farmer recently who was, had a farm in Indiana. Some high school kids for a lark started a rumor that he had a coffin in his living room with a dead corpse in the coffin. And uh, curiosity seekers came looking. Part of the rumor was that he had a shotgun, and if you tried to pry around, he would scare you off with a shotgun. Sure enough, when the curiosity seekers began coming around, why, he brought out the shotgun and warned them to leave. That just increased the rumor and the crowds. Pretty soon every night a crowd would gather out in his yard. He didn't understand. Police were called. They investigated and assured everyone there was nothing to the rumor, but the crowds kept coming. Uh, they would blow off firecrackers. They would honk their horns. Finally, one night, the farmer, in sheer desperation, put the shotgun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. Character assassination and the fruit of it. Tragic. Well, David was experiencing something of this. And uh, he complains. He's grieved. He calls out to the Lord to help. And he resorts to prayer. Notice in verse 4, he says, For my love, they are my adversaries. I, I give love and they requite with hatred. But he says, But I give myself unto prayer. And to give myself is not a part of the original in Hebrew. It says, But I prayer. That's what he does. That's how he responds. He prays. 
He takes his case to God. Now, we see the complaint, and everything's in order so far. We don't have any problem with this so far, but notice the curse. Notice what happens second. He comes up with this awful curse, and apparently there was one outstanding leader of this opposition, and he calls down this curse on this individual. And at first glance, it strikes us as very unchristian what David does here. Uh, You would have those who seek to avoid the problem by saying, well, this isn't David's curse on his enemy. This is David quoting what the enemy is calling on him or what the enemy is saying about him. That, for instance, would be Ray Steadman's approach to this in a little book he has out on the Psalms. But most commentators uh, feel that's a very inadequate explanation here, Uh, particularly if you look at uh, verse 18, which doesn't seem to fit at all. As he clothed himself with cursing as with his garment, so let it come into his bowels. David, his enemies, uh, saying that he clothed himself with cursing, which, of course, he didn't do. And verse 20, uh, this person uh, speaking, and I believe it's David, uh, turns the whole thing around on his enemies. And again, that wouldn't fit the theory that this was them, uh, him quoting them. I think, I think we have to face up the fact that this is David calling a curse down on his enemies. Let's look at the content of it for a moment, putting the best construction we can on it, And then we'll take up the issue of the consistency of this with biblical teaching. First, the content. In verse 6, Set thou a wicked man over him, and let Satan stand at his right hand. Set thou a wicked man over him. In other words, let Qaddafi experience having a Qaddafi over him. Let Herod have a Herod over him. That's the kind of curse that's being called down here. Let Satan stand at his right hand. I'm not sure what that means. It may mean in some way to accuse him or to trip him up. Let Satan stand at his right hand. Then verse 7. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned. And let his prayer become sin, since it would be hypocritical. When he is judged, let him be condemned. Well, who would want a Nero cleared at the bar of God's justice? or a Herod, or a Hitler. In verse 8, let his days be few. Let him die soon. Well, again, who would want some tyrant to go on carrying out his evil practices? Who would want a Hitler to live a long time? Let his days be few. And let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless. And his wife a widow. That's another way of saying let him die soon. Verse 10. Let his children be continually vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. Let the extortioner catch all that he hath. And let the strangers spoil his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy unto him. Neither let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off. Again, I think we should assume that the children are like the father. And uh, thus this request for them. But still, let's 
This is uh, not something that we are real comfortable with, a prayer like this. It's a terrible curse. Calvin said that in his day, people would hire a priest or a friar or a monk to go and pronounce this curse on their enemies. Of course, Calvin totally uh, countermanded that type thing and regarded it as utterly inappropriate. We see the curse, the content of it. Notice the logic of it, the cause in a sense. Verse 16, because that he remembered not to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart, as he loved cursing, so let it come unto him. As he delighted not in blessing, so let it be far from him. The logic is, let him reap what he sown. That's the logic. Now, we see the curse. Is that consistent with biblical teaching? One time I was speaking to a group of teenagers in a meeting here in the city, not sponsored by our church. I was speaking, another group was sponsoring it. And when I finished speaking, a minister from another congregation, another denomination, happened to be present. And he made a beeline up to me as soon as I finished speaking. I'd spoken from the book of Romans and had simply applied the passage to these teenagers. He came up to me and he said, You spoke just as if that was the inspired Word of God. I said, Well, that's what I believe. He said, Well, I don't believe that. I believe some of it's inspired and some of it isn't. And at that point, he turned to this psalm and he read this curse. And he said, do you believe David was inspired when he wrote that? I said, well, let me ask you a question. How do you decide, you don't believe, you believe some of it's inspired, some of it, how do you decide which part is, which part isn't? He said, if it inspires me, it's inspired. Well, uh, that's a little loose, but uh, he had a point, didn't he, when he raised this song. That's tough. What shall we say? Is this consistent? Was David inspired when he calls down this curse on his enemy? Well, let's think about it. You would have those who would say, no, he wasn't. And, uh, for instance, Kittle ascribes this to carnal passion that is utterly inexcusable. Others would say, well, you you take into account progressive revelation. At this point in God's revealing himself and his truth, why a great thing that's emphasized in the Old Testament is God's holiness and God's justice. Then you progress on in the New where the emphasis is on God's love and on God's forgiveness. Well, certainly God's love and forgiveness shines out in the New and the death of Jesus Christ is God's gift to us in a brighter way than anywhere else in Scripture. But the New Testament has some terrible passages on the holiness and justice of God and the severity of His judgment. And uh, the Old Testament has some great passages on the love of God and His mercy. So uh, the idea of progressive revelation doesn't exactly satisfy. You know, David had a lot of faults. But one of his faults was not being a vindictive person. David was amazingly forgiving toward his enemies. When Saul was seeking to kill him, 
David had opportunity after opportunity to kill Saul. Wouldn't touch him. And when Saul was killed in battle, and David heard of it, he grieved and mourned, and you'd have thought he'd lost his best friend. David wasn't a vindictive person. There's nothing else in the psalm that would uh, indicate that the writer was anything but a, a meek person trusting in the Lord. He resorts to prayer and so on when he has this uh, character assassination going on concerning him. How do we explain it? Uh, an essay was written some years ago by a man by the name of Chalmers Martin, and it's included in Classical Evangelical Essays and Old Testament Interpretation. It's on imprecations or curses in the Psalms. And he reasons like this. He says, first, these curses are the expression of the longing of an Old Testament believer for the vindication of God's righteousness. He illustrates it from several similar psalms. Psalm 58. Break their teeth, O God, in their mouth. But then he goes on to say this. So that men may say, Verily there is a reward for the righteous. Verily there is a God who judges in the earth. He wants men to know there is a God. Who balances the books? Men need to know that, and they need to see evidence of it. So it's the longings of an Old Testament believer for God to vindicate His truth and His justice. He quotes from Psalm 94, O Lord, Thou God to whom vengeance belongeth, lift up Thyself, Thou judge of the earth, render to the proud their deserts. Lord, how long shall the wicked triumph? He wants the cause of truth to triumph. A second answer is that these are utterances of zeal for God and God's kingdom. You need to realize that the kingdom of God at that time didn't exist in an ecclesiastical form so much as in a political form with a king whom God had appointed. So that as God's representative... His enemies ceased to be private enemies, nor were they guilty of treason simply. They must be accounted the enemies of God himself and of his cause on the earth, so that David might ask for them and anticipate for them a fate which he never would have desired for those who were mere personal opponents, and that he could do that without sin, just like Paul said, if any man love not the Lord Jesus, let him be anathema maranatha. Let him be accursed when the Lord comes. Another and final point that he makes is that David was a prophet. And these curses are prophetic teachings as to the attitude of God towards sin and impenitent and persistent sinners. They're, just, they're not merely lyric poems 
incorporating the feeling of the writer of the poem, but writing under the inspiration of God's Spirit, they incorporate the attitude of God toward these enemies. Persistent, high-handed rebels against him. I think that last points us to maybe a real key in this particular psalm. David was a prophet. David himself is under personal attack by these character assassins. He's grieved. He hurts. And as he cries out to God, and as under the inspiration of God's Spirit, he begins to write his feelings and his prayer, suddenly the Spirit of God as takes David as a prophet and lifts him beyond himself so that he no longer just speaking of himself and those who are attacking him, but takes him into the future. David lived a thousand B.C. Takes him into the future, and now he is writing of Jesus under attack and Judas as the attacker. And the curse that he pronounces and calls down on this person who's attacking is really the curse that will fall on Judas. Look how the New Testament interprets this psalm. Look at Acts chapter 1 and uh, verse 15. Acts chapter 1, verse 15, right after the ascension of Jesus, Peter stands up among the disciples. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost, by the mouth of David, spoke before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. Verse 20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, and then he quotes from this psalm, Let his habitation be desolate. Let no man dwell therein, and his office, or his bishopric, let another take. Wherefore, he says, we need to replace Judas. It was prophesied that his house would be desolate and that another should take his office. We need to replace him. We need to elect someone to take his place among the twelve because David predicted that curse would come upon him. No wonder this is called Psalmus Iscariotus or the Judas Psalm. Now, uh, we see something of the nature of this. One minister, when he was having family devotions, read this psalm to his family and his ten-year-old son, after the minister read the curse, said, Daddy, do you think that's right to call down a curse like that on your enemy? Because we see that's not exactly what was involved there. But the father said to the son, he said, son, if someone broke in the house tonight and uh, killed your mother, murdered your mother, and escaped, and the sheriff were trying to catch him, would you feel it was proper to pray that the sheriff catch him and that he be brought to justice? He said, yes, Daddy, I think that would be proper. And it would be. But without personal vindictiveness or personal hatred, Remember, Jesus, and the little boy pointed this out to his daddy, Daddy Jesus prayed for his murderers on the cross. 
Father, forgive them. And uh, the little boy is right that we must make sure that our attitude is one of forgiveness. What the Spirit of God led David to do in predicting a curse that's going to fall on Judas can't be a guide for us. Jesus praying on the cross for his enemies is a guide for us. An illustration of that, 1980, a bishop, a Christian bishop in Iran, had his son murdered. And he poured out his heart in this prayer on that occasion. Oh God, we remember not only Bremen, our son, but also his murderers. Not because they killed him in the prime of his youth and made our hearts bleed and our tears flow. Not because with this savage act they brought further disgrace on the name of our country among the civilized nations of the world but because that through their crime we now follow thy footsteps more closely in the way of sacrifice. The terrible fire of this calamity burns up all selfishness and possessiveness in us. Its flame reveals the depth of depravity and meanness and suspicion, the dimension of hatred and the measure of sinfulness in human nature. It makes obvious as never before our need to trust in God's love as shown in the cross of Jesus and his resurrection. Love which makes us free from hate toward our persecutors. Love which brings patience, forbearance, courage, loyalty, humility, generosity, greatness of heart. Love which more than ever deepens our trust in God's final victory and his eternal designs for the church and for the world. Love which teaches us how to prepare ourselves to face our own day of death. Oh God, Bremen's blood has multiplied the fruit of the Spirit in the soil of our souls. So when his murderers stand before your bar of justice on the day of judgment, remember the fruit of the Spirit by which they have enriched our lives and forgive. Well, that's the Spirit of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? And that's a good guide for us to follow when we have those who assassinate our character or in some other way hurt or kill our son. You see, what we should do as Christians, think, of course, of what Christ did. Christ took upon himself the curse that should have fallen on us. Every one of us had a curse like this hanging over our head. All of us have been uh, guilty of breaking God's awful law. And If we didn't betray Jesus exactly like Judas did, we still have betrayed him in many ways. And hanging over our head was a curse. But we're told that Christ was made a curse for us. Christ took the curse of the broken law upon himself and died in our stead that that curse might be removed from us and that we might be forgiven when we truly repent and turn from our sin and believe his claim to be the Son of God and trust him as our Savior to forgive us as a gift. Have you done that? If you haven't, that curse is hanging over your head. An awful curse, far worse than this curse in a sense hanging over your head. Now, we see the complaint and the curse. Notice then uh, David's prayer in verse 21. 
Let this be the reward. Excuse me, verse 21. Do thou for me, O God the Lord, for thy name's sake, because thy mercy is good, deliver thou me. He asked God to deliver him, and he gives his reasons. For your name's sake. God, you have gotten yourself a reputation of helping your people when they call on you. Now, uphold that for your name's sake. Deliver thou me. Because of his need. In verse 22, I am poor and needy. My heart is wounded within me. Because he wants God to show that he is on his side. In verse 26, Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to thy mercy, that they may know that this is thy hand, that thou, Lord, hast done it. Let them curse, but bless thou. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let thy servant rejoice. There's his prayer. And then the vow to praise God when God does deliver. In verse 30, I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yea, I will praise him among the multitude. For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those that condemn his soul. I know you'll come through, God. His confidence that God will undertake and help. Well, we see here an example to follow. David's example. His enemies were attacking him, but he sought to love. He was innocent of their charges. And he resorted to prayer, an example to follow. He was convinced God would help him, an example to follow. We see a practice to shun, the practice of character assassination. How common that is. I was reading a true story by a lady by the name of Pauline McClellan. She and her husband were transferred to an army base in Alaska, Fort Richardson there. And uh, they didn't have a phone at the little place he found for them to stay in. And he would go in. He'd be there 24 hours at a time at the base. He told her, if a blizzard ever comes, you don't go out of that house. Whatever you do, stay in the house. Well, off he went one day to the fort, and sure enough, a blizzard came. Terrible. Late that afternoon. So as she tries to make sure the house is warm, and she goes over to the oil-burning stove there, that they relied on for heat, and it was cooling off. She tried to light it. It wouldn't light. She couldn't figure out what was wrong. No telephone, no way to get out of the house. Seven weeks old baby girl in there with her. She went over. The little girl was starting to turn blue. Uh, Tears began to freeze on her face, and she began to realize they were going to die. They were going to freeze to death before morning. She even began to get sleepy as, as you do when you begin to freeze to death. She prayed, Please, Lord, send help. Please, Lord, don't let us die. When she first had moved into the community, she saw a fierce-looking man in the community. Old Otto. They called him Otto the Madman. And rumors went around about Otto that he'd murdered somebody during the gold rush. Lived by himself, fierce looking. And she was terrified of him, avoided him, passed the rumors on to other newcomers. Suddenly she hears scuffling at her door, dogs barking. The door flies open and it's old Otto looking fiercer than ever. She almost screamed out. He came in, he had his arms full of firewood. 
uh, he, uh, he said, I come with the firewood. Oil stove, no good. I make wood burner from stove. Make house warm. She watched speechless as he ripped parts of the oil stove up, making a makeshift grate from coat hangers and put hunks of wood in his new apparatus. A few minutes later, he had a fire roaring in the stove, spreading warmth throughout the cabin. Then he heated some milk for the baby and coffee for her. I looked at the old man I'd been so frightened of, now caring for my baby's needs. I felt terribly ashamed. I judged old Otto wrongly, based only on the gossip of others. I thought of him as ugly and menacing. And now in my hour of despair, he cared enough to come and help me. He said, I see no light, no smoke from your cabin. I come to look. He explained that outside he'd found the oil barrel tipped over by the blizzard, and that's why the stove had gone off. Then he said, God watching us. God brought me. Otto and our small family became good friends throughout the rest of Jim's tour of duty. He often came by to visit, delighting us with all the stories of Alaska in the gold rush days. He loved my little girl especially. We don't want to be guilty of character assassination. A practice to shun, and of course, finally, a warning to heed. If you don't become a Christian, if you don't turn to Jesus Christ, a curse like the one we read is hanging over your head. You're calling it down on yourself. There's only one way to have that curse removed. And that's to turn to Him who took the curse for you, Jesus Christ, and let it fall on Himself. And ask Him to totally remove it from you. But you want Him to be your Master, and you trust Him to be your Savior. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, maybe you've experienced character assassination. How have you responded? Have you had hatred and bitterness in your heart? Or have you been like the bishop who forgave and who prayed for those others? Maybe you've been guilty of assassination of someone else's character and need to go to them and ask their forgiveness and try to make the matter straight. Possibly you have that curse hanging over your head. You have never turned to Jesus Christ. As the one who bore the curse due you. And asked him to remove yours as a gift. Given your life to him as your master and trusted him as your savior. If you've never done that, do that now. Pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, I can't stand to have that curse fall on me. Thank you so much for your taking it. Lord, remove it now from me. Be my savior. I purpose to obey. Change my life. Amen.